0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. If you haven't heard about the EM Cases Summit November 11th to 13th, well, perhaps you've been living under a rock. I suppose most of us have been living under a rock during the pandemic. Anyhow, Tickets just went on sale August 19th at EMcasesummit.com, and they are selling fast. This is next level EM cases with professionally produced procedural videos, dozens of the best speakers in EM in the world, including some of your EM cases faves like Aaron Ciel, Sarah Reed, Anand Swami Nathan, Justin Morgenstern, Kirsten DeWitt, Walter Himmel. The list goes on and on. If you're into FOMED, we've even got MCRIT's Scott Weingart, the SGEM's Ken Milne, and Rebel EM's Salim Rose. We're going to make it interactive and fun with prize giveaways and digital packages, so you can review whatever you want after the summit. There's deep discounts for residents, RNs, paramedics, and medical students, so go grab your tickets at emcasesummit.com while they last. Now on to geriatric trauma. Just as pediatric patients are not small adults, geriatric patients are not just old adults. The older patient isn't just sicker, they can be sneaky. Their favorite game is to hide how sick they are, and then burst from behind the curtain of cognitive error and yell, ha, gotcha again. And nowhere should this be more the case than in today's topic, trauma. This two-part pair of episodes on trauma in the older patient are an exploration of both minor and major trauma. We'll cover how the physiology of aging can add extra challenges, plus critical pathology seen in the elderly that make them so susceptible to trauma badness, and then what you need to do about it. I'll give away a little bit here. We weigh under-triage older patients, both at the door of the ED and when it comes to transferring to a trauma center. More on that later. Our guest experts, well, I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Barbara Haas, who you might have heard on our massive hemorrhage protocols episode from Sunnybrook Health Sciences in Toronto, trauma team leader and surgeon with a special research interest in geriatric trauma. Welcome back, Dr. Haas.
1: Very excited to be here to talk about my favorite topic.
0: Awesome. And back on EM cases for, I believe, the third time, trauma team leader, intensivist, EM-trained, Dr. Burke Tillman. Thanks so much for stepping in last minute, Dr. Tillman.
2: I'm more than happy to pinch hit, and I hope I don't disappoint.
0: I'm sure you won't. And new to EM cases, Dr. Camilla Wong, a geriatrician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto with a research interest and expertise in trauma in the older person. Welcome, Dr. Wong.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Now, despite the fact that the oldest old are the fastest growing population in North America, and that older patients with severe injuries represent at least 40% of all adults with severe injuries in our trauma system where we are, and older patients are more likely to experience trauma like falls and to have worse outcomes after trauma, I ask you, have you ever seen an imaging clinical decision rule applicable to people 93 years old? Me neither. So let's dive in. An 85 year old woman who lives with her husband in an apartment comes in via EMS after losing her balance while moving a chair and falling onto the hardwood floor. She was unable to get up by herself. Her triage vitals are a heart rate of 90, a blood pressure of 120 on 70, a respiratory rate of 22, oxygen saturation of 95% on room air, and she has a GCS of 15. She's triaged to the intermediate area of your ED. She complains of pain in the right leg and chest, as well as shoulder. She has a past medical history of mild dementia for about the past year, as well as atrial fibrillation. The only medication she takes is a DOAC for stroke prevention. So, Dr. Tillman, in the last EM Cases Trauma episode, the first and last 15 minutes, we talked about the shock index and other predictors of badness. How should we assess the vital signs and shock index differently in the older patient who's suffered uh, some sort of trauma?
2: I think there's a lot more you need to take into account when assessing the older adult. The shock index can still be useful in the sense that if it's elevated, that's really concerning. But there are many reasons why it may be falsely lower than you would expect to see in a younger patient. First of all, we need to remember that older adults are often prescribed medications that can interfere with their usual response to trauma or volume depletion, so they may never increase their heart rate. And seeing as the heart rate is the major part of the shock index, you're going to falsely lower that and therefore have a heart rate that is not higher than your systolic blood pressure, but only because they are unable to increase their heart rate due to, say, beta blockade. Similarly, they may not be able to mount the same tachycardic response as you would expect to see in a 19 or 20-year-old traumatically injured patient. All that is to say is a positive shock index should be really worrisome, the fact that they've able to get that hypotensive or that tachycardic, but a negative shock index shouldn't be used as a rule out. Instead, you should consider the clinical picture. There's also age adjustments you can do and you can look this up and it'll be in the show notes where you can multiply their heart rate by their age and then divide by the blood pressure and if that's significantly elevated or above 50, then that should also lead you to suspect shock. But I really think the more important idea is in an older adult who has been in a traumatic injury, you should suspect that they have significant injuries until you have ruled them out as opposed to saying, you know what, their heart rate looks normal, their blood pressure looks normal, we're totally fine. Because these patients have lots of different reasons they can have increased injury severity for what seems like a fairly minor mechanism of injury.
0: Beautifully put. Dr. Haas, Dr. Wong, any comments about uh, assessing vital signs in the trauma patient uh, who's older than, say, 55 years old?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges with trauma in older adults is that we're trained to think about things that cause death in young adults when we think of trauma. We think of the main sort of stage to save a life being the emergency department and the first 10 minutes. And that's certainly true for your patients presenting with gunshot wounds or bad car crashes who are younger. The cool thing and the challenging thing about trauma in older adults. Is that it really involves everyone in the spectrum of care, from the emergency physician to the inpatient physician, geriatrician, and the rehab doc. And while most younger adults, if you can get them through that first 24 hours, they're going to walk out of the hospital, that's not true of older adults. So even if they look perfectly stable in the emergency department, we have to, as a team, think what are they going to need tomorrow? What are they going to need in the week that's coming? And that's what saves their life, not only what we do um, in the trauma bay. And that's what makes it tough, because we're not trained to think that way as resuscitationists.
0: Right. That's exactly why we have an intensivist and a surgeon and a geriatrician on the podcast to kind of help us through that entire voyage or trip or journey of, of that older patient after they have trauma. Let's talk a little bit more about physiology. So just as kids are not small adults, the older patient is not just an old adult like we were talking about in the introduction. Their physiology is vastly different. So let's talk about the most important physiologic differences we need to be aware of when it comes to resuscitating the older trauma patient. So let's take turns. So Dr. Haas, can you tell us a little bit about the cardiovascular physiologic differences that we we need to be aware of?
1: So the cardiovascular system of older adults, as we know from every field of medicine, is much less forgiving. You know, you give a 20-year-old a little bit too much or too little volume, they'll be fine. They'll drink a Coke later or they'll pee it out. For an older adult, you got to get it right. They come with stiff hearts or hearts that are not uh, pumping ideally at baseline in many cases, and you have to get the volume right. So you really want to be more judicious and thoughtful. And uh, the nice thing about working with emergency physicians is that most of you guys are very facile with ultrasound. So this is a, a great situation to use bedside ultrasound to guide your resuscitation.
0: Absolutely. So that's a little bit about the cardiovascular differences. Dr. Burke, you're the most experienced airway management physician, probably amongst all of us. What are some of the key sort of physiologic differences or, and anatomical differences for that matter? when it comes to the airway of older patients uh, who are trauma patients in particular?
2: So, there are a lot of different things to consider when managing the airway of an older adult. First of all, their dentition may be markedly changed outside of the trauma. I think when we're thinking of bad trauma, we always think of injuries to the mouth. But in these situations, the patient may not have their own teeth. They may have dentures that should be in and aren't in or are in and need to be out. And you have to remember that dentures provide a nice framework for the face if you're trying to provide bag mask valve ventilation. But at the same point in time, if you're going to stick a laryngoscope in there, the dentures move around and it makes life really challenging and takes what could be a simple airway and makes it very difficult. Likewise, there can be differences in how their mouth opens and closes. We know we develop arthritis over time and your TMJ is just another joint. So there could be further complications in just getting into their mouth. And then as we work down, most of these patients are going to be in C-collars. We probably underappreciate the risk to their C-spine on some of what we think are lower velocity mechanisms of injuries. But if we're playing it safe, they're probably going to be in a C-collar. That being said, if they are not in a C-collar, there's still a high likelihood that the mobility of their neck is going to be less than you would expect for the patient due to arthritic changes over time and also the possibility of previous surgical or other procedures that limit neck mobility. Finally, the airway itself may look different. The epiglottis may be slightly changed if they've been a long-term smoker. There can be lots of changes to what you're actually visualizing. So all of these factors together should be considered when you're approaching these airways. And like any airway a traumatically injured patient, these are considered difficult airways until proven otherwise, usually due to the presence of a C-collar, but there's lots else to consider and treat it with respect.
0: All right, so those are some of the anatomical and physiologic problems with the airway that you might encounter. Uh, we'll definitely talk more about C-collars and talk about how to modify our RSI a little bit later in the podcast. Let's move on to the respiratory differences. Dr. Haas, what are the sort of respiratory things we need to be aware of in the older trauma patient You know, who might have a rib fracture or a flail chest or a pneumothorax or a hemothorax and that you need to intubate them for whatever reason? what are uh, the respiratory differences we need to think about?
1: When I think about the respiratory differences in older adults, I divide that into sort of immediate in the trauma bay and then uh, in the hours in the emergency department. And, And it's actually the latter that are really, really key and that I hope to sort of drive home today when we talk about these issues. So in the trauma bay or in your emergency department, if the patient comes in and is clearly in respiratory distress, there is some trickiness to intubating older adults. They have less reserve. Like their hearts, their lungs might be stiff. They may be coming in with pre-existing lung pathology. So they may have less reserve and desaturate more quickly. So you really need to stay on top of that. The other issue is what you really want to think about as an emergency physician is that, you know, if you intubate a 20-year-old for whatever reason, what we commonly see in our patient population, you intubate them for agitation They're fine. They'll get extubated the next day and maybe be unhappy, but they will get better. If you intubate a 90-year-old, that might be a death sentence for that patient. So what you really want to think about is, do I actually really need to intubate this patient? That is not to say that if they're desatting or splinting or look awful that you should intubate them. But those things we commonly do for some reason in the trauma bay, like intubate for agitation, really shouldn't happen in an older adult. You really want to be much more judicious about your sedation and try to get them calm, both pharmacologically and just with reassurance. I mean, it's scary to be in there. And those patients who don't need intubation for pulmonary reasons or GCS, you really want to try to avoid intubating them. That's really important.
0: That is a great point. I mean, there are some emergency physicians out there that are... uh... How shall I say this? Cow girls or cowboys? <laughs> I think that's the politically correct way of saying it now. Um, no. <laughs> cow people. No, cow people are cow people. You know, and they're ready to intubate anyone who may need to be intubated. So that that's a great point. That remember that intubating a nine-year-old carries with it some serious morbidity. So you really have to weigh the pros and cons of intubation carefully. Let's move on to. The neurologic differences. So Dr. Wong, what do we have to think about in terms of neurologic differences for the patient who's coming in after a trauma, who's say 85 years old?
3: Yeah. So what we know with you know, changes with aging, if we were to do brain imaging on older adults, invariably most of them will have some degree of cerebral atrophy. And so, this means that there's a lot of real estate where blood can hide. And what that means is that there is a delay in the presentation in terms of decreased level of consciousness or the manifestation of neurologic signs. So, a GCS of 15 should not necessarily be reassurance. And you really have to keep in mind that there is often a delay in the neurologic uh, changes because of the anatomic changes that happen with aging. I think the other consideration is that a lot of older adults are also on antiplatelet agents and anticoagulants that can affect their uh, neurologic presentation as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, And Dr. Wong, anything else we need to be aware of in the older patient uh, who comes in trauma in terms of their basic physiology?
3: Yeah. I mean, so what would normally be, you know, a low impact trauma if there's such a thing? the injuries may be quite disproportionate in the older adult in terms of musculoskeletal injury. And specifically, this is because as we age, we have a decline in bone quality and bone density. So for the same mechanism of trauma, for the same sort of severity or impact, the older adult is more likely to sustain fractures.
1: I would just add to that, uh, you know, some of the clinical decisions rules we have around imaging for certain mechanisms, like you have to be going 60 kilometers an hour to get this injury or that injury, and I'm not making this up, those were actually done by, in the 50s, they would throw cadavers out of windows in labs to figure out how fast a body needs to hit something to be injured. These were like young people. Uh, And I know it sounds gruesome, but I want to tell that gruesome story to really cement in people's minds that when we think of an injury pattern with a velocity or a height, that's for young adults. And that is literally out the window Uh, For older adults. Um, And it's very important to remember that.
0: Totally. I want to talk a little bit about uh, triaging the older trauma patient. I understand that older patients who've suffered trauma do much better at high volume trauma centers like where you work, Dr. Haas and Dr. Burke, and that unfortunately older patients are under triage to trauma centers leading to bad outcomes. So, Dr. Haas, what do you think the criteria for trauma team activation should be? for the older patient. So say at Sunnybrook, if you're the eMERGE doc, you have to decide when to activate the trauma team. Or if you work in a community hospital, which most of, our, most of our listeners do, you have to decide when to get on the phone and transfer the patient out. Should those criteria for transferring to a trauma center or activating the trauma team, should those be any different than the general recommendations of you know the usual hemodynamic instability to system involvement, et cetera?
1: So the answer to that is 100% they should be different. And this is the part of the podcast where I will bore your listeners with some nerdy numbers. So Dr. Tillman and I uh, and Dr. Wong have have looked at these data for the past 10 years in Ontario. Over two-thirds of older adults in Ontario who have a severe injury go to a non-trauma centre from the field. So the paramedics take them to a non-trauma centre. And less than half of those patients are then transferred to a trauma center. These are patients who have injuries that we know would do better at a trauma center. We know there's about a 25 to 30% reduction in mortality with these uh, types of patients being treated at a trauma center. And yet they are persistently not identified in the field as needing trauma center care.
0: Well, wow. 25% decrease in mortality. Right. I mean, I can't think of many interventions that come even close to that.
1: It's a, it's basically like if you're over 65 and no one gave you aspirin for your ST elevation, like that's the level of harm. And then this is where, you know, I'm excited and Dr. Wong excited to be on the show today because the emergency physicians play the key role, right? They are faced with this really tough decision to transfer or not. And they face many, many barriers in doing the right thing. And so... Part of why we're here is to say, you know, we know you face barriers. Here's why it's still the right thing to push to get these patients transferred. In most jurisdictions, there are some transfer guidelines. In Ontario, if you Google trauma centre consultation guidelines, it's the first thing that pops up. And it gives you an outline of who should be considered for transfer. You know, two systems, unstable, low GCS. And it explicitly says that if you're older your threshold for transfer should be lower, not higher. But when we looked at this in real world data, we found the opposite. If you were frail, if you were more fragile and more likely to have a bad outcome, you were way less likely to be transferred. And so there's a discrepancy between what the right thing to do is and what's actually happening. And I think it's for two reasons. One, again, older adults don't look like traumas, right? They look like people with chest pain and their leg hurts a bit, but they haven't been shot or stabbed, so they don't look like traumas uh, and their physiology doesn't look like a trauma. And two, certainly at trauma centers, and I've learned this by talking to my colleagues at non-academic hospitals, uh, sometimes there's not a lot of excitement to take these patients. Uh, Emerge docs get a lot of pushback. Oh, it's not operative, this and that and the other. Wouldn't they rather stay home? Wouldn't they rather be at the hospital with their cardiologist? the truth is when we asked older adults and we've done this would you rather live and be farther away from home or uh, have a worse recovery and stay close to home they basically say are you idiots of course we want to have a good recovery patients want to be transferred and we know that that's only possible if those that are at highest risk of a bad outcome so older adults particularly frail adults are transferred and it's okay to push and it's okay to say listen The transfer guidelines say we should have a lower threshold, and this patient has an ISS over 15 or has a severe injury, they need to go. And I think that, to me, is the most important thing that I want to talk about today, because we know there's a problem, and eMERGE docs all over Canada, in the US, are facing these conversations, and and we need to be supported in, in making the right decisions.
0: All right, so that was really interesting in terms of the reasons why they sometimes get pushed back and how the patients look a little bit different than a young patient who's gotten into a huge car accident or had a stabbing. What do you think are the solutions to this problem?
1: So I think a recognition that it's a problem is the first step. I think that people really don't realize the benefit of trauma-centric care. You know, they figure If they don't need an operation in the first two hours, they don't need massive blood transfusion, there's no benefit. Uh, That's just not true. Trauma centers don't improve outcomes just because there are are surgeons there and ICU docs there and emergency physicians there. They improve outcomes both from a mortality and from a functional perspective because they have the right multidisciplinary team, including a geriatrician. Uh, They have the right PT, they have the right OT, they have good relationships with rehab and they. Are hopeful for those patients and they get them to rehab. So you have to think about that 25% mortality benefit for all of your trauma patients, not just the ones who need immediate care. And to help yourself overcome this heuristic of what a what a trauma patient looks like, just be very objective about it. Does this patient have severe injuries? And that might mean uh, having a protocol at your place or being familiar with the protocols of your jurisdiction, but if they have a severe injury, whether it's operative or not, they should go. And lastly, know who to ask. Know who your friend is at the trauma center. If you have a patient with a head injury, a facial fracture, and a femur, all of which might be non-operative, you're gonna call your neurosurgeon, they're gonna say no. You're gonna call your plastic surgeon, they're gonna say send them to clinic, and you're gonna send your orthopod, call the orthopod and they're gonna say, why can't your guy fix it? What you wanna do is you wanna call your trauma surgeon or your TTL. Because our passion in life is taking care of these patients, even if they don't need surgery. And uh, we see our job as taking care of the whole patient and we understand this trajectory. So don't call the surgeon because you're asking if they need surgery. Call the surgeon who provides care for injured patients from the moment they hit the door to a year later. That's your friend. That's who you want to call.
0: That is so accurate, the way you've described what happens when you have a patient with multiple injuries. You call the one, they say no. You call the other, they say no. So
1: I get a lot of text messages from people who are like, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah.
0: Excellent. So the TTL is your friend
3: just to add to the literature beyond what, you know, Barbara's group has done in terms of studying the problem of under triage in Ontario. I mean, there are other studies in North America. I think the largest one was probably a retrospective study of over like 260,000 patients. And I can add the, the reference later on, but they evaluated these older adults who were transported by EMS during a three-year study period. And the incidence of under triage in this large retrospective study basically showed that under triage increased nonlinearly after the age of 60 and reached 60% for those that are above the age of 90. So when we talk about older adults, there's even discrepancy in terms of care when you get to the very, very old.
0: Well, I've only got like 10 years to go to be 60. So (laughs) that's kind of scary to think that if I get in a big car accident in 10 years, they're going to... Under triage and
1: it it doesn't matter where you crash your car in North America, if it's in Ontario, if it's in California, if it's in Florida you will you will get under triaged because this has been true in every single jurisdiction that this has ever been looked at. I mean if they're under triaging in
3: Florida, you know we're in trouble, right <laughs> <laughs> and, and lots of um, lots of international centers have looked at like different models of how do you adjust trauma, triage and trauma team activations for older persons and you know no one's really agreed upon parameters but what different centers have done is sort of adjusting the physiologic parameters or lowering the threshold to just like boiling it down to the mechanism like if it's a fall like you send them or if they're on anticoagulation you just send them so those are sort of the different parameters that have sort of been played around in different jurisdictions.
2: I would add this more to Barbara's talking about solutions and this also harks back to earlier in the conversation is being objective with these patients. If Let's say you've gone and gotten the CAT scans. You're at a larger community center. You have access to CAT scans. They came in and they were not imminently dying. These vital signs looked normal. And you did a thorough investigation, as we're going to talk about later in the podcast. And then you identify a list of injuries. That's where you should step back, count them up, and realize that, yeah, this is a severe injury. This is a multi-system trauma. And just as Dr. Haas said earlier, these patients aren't the ones who die in the first two hours and you miss the golden hour or the key window and you, it's sort of done for. These patients, their fatal complication or their trajectory takes longer. It also means that as emergency physicians, you haven't missed the boat yet. So be objective after that scan, go through it and say, oh yeah, there are a lot of injuries here. I didn't suspect this. I've missed many a flail chest of an older adult falling out of bed. But that doesn't mean that you don't have another chance to then call your trauma team leader. It makes my job really easy if you call me and you say, these are the injuries. I'm like, perfect. I know how to treat those and I know I need to treat them. Send them on down. So I like to use in any patient with a traumatic mechanism who you've imaged. Use that image review period as a time to count it up because that gives you an objective step back to say, oh, their vitals looked fine, but this seems like a lot. And you can sort of take that as a crystallizing moment to make the call. And just as Dr. Haas said, just as I think most of us experience working in Merge in the community, you do want to contact the service that takes care of multi-system injured patients. Because even if each injury is non-operative, these services will help, whereas when you have a service focused on the operative repair of one region, this might not be their jam.
1: And importantly, just because somebody says no to you doesn't mean you were wrong. It's like when I tell my residents, if you call the staff and you're worried and the staff's a jerk to you and it's like, why are you calling me? doesn't make you wrong. If you're an eMERGE doc and you call and the patient has a subdural, uh, a broken wrist, a broken pelvis and four broken ribs. And someone says to you, well, medicine can manage that at your place. You were right. You were right. That patient needed to come and uh, don't, you know, don't let it get you down. You did the right thing and make that call the next time. People don't know everything about trauma in the elderly, even at trauma centers. So you, you might not get the answer you wish for, but know that you're doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, so this really signifies a major paradigm shift in trauma care because as you've pointed out, the right treatment for these patients just is not happening often enough. I want to move on to talk about injury patterns. There's the typical injury pattern, say, you know, of someone falling off a bicycle and they got the handlebar pattern. There's typical pattern in younger adults. What injury patterns in particular should we be looking for in older patients compared to younger trauma patients?
1: So it depends on the mechanism. It depends on the age. And most importantly, depends on your level of suspicion. (laughs) Uh, Every new older adult surprises me at how good they are at hiding, how sick they are. Um, So for falls, you really, obviously, we're always worried about the head. For an older adult, even a same level fall can result in significant spinal injuries. It's sadly common how often we see someone with pre-existing spinal stenosis convert to a cord injury. You would pick that up right away, but just to say they can easily get uh, spinal fractures and even trivial pelvic fractures in an older adult, particularly an older adult who's anticoagulated or on antiplatelet therapy, can quickly lead to a a massive bleed um, requiring transfusions and NGO.
2: I'd like to pop in just quickly there as an anecdote to sort of help drive home what Dr. Haas has said. So I've worked in many small emergency departments like the five bed, no x-ray after 5 p.m. emergency departments I'm sure many of you work in. And I still remember a 9 year old male who walked in four days after falling while shoveling comparing of throat pain. He said his throat was just sore. It started after he fell into a snowbank. After doing a plane film and seeing his dish or degenerative changes in his spines, I spoke with my colleagues and he had an unstable C5 fracture. So this is a guy who fell from standing into snow. I was early in my career and had no sort of thought of this on my page. And then he had to go for emergent spinal fixation. It's a case that I remembered from almost a decade ago now to treat the, the spinal column in older adults with a lot of caution, even from these falls that seem so innocuous. And it comes back to what Dr. Wong said about the changes in your physiology and your bone structure, that this may be a normal force, but on abnormal bones, as I've heard my colleagues describe it before.
1: And I think that story of the patient walking in is not uncommon. You know, there's a great deal of shame associated with falling when you're an older adult. It means you're suddenly old when you felt like you weren't old yesterday. And so it's actually shockingly common about patients having these horrible falls and then hanging out at home for three days and coming in. So the fact that they didn't come from the scene does not exclude severe injury. Same thing with motor vehicle collisions. We were talking about patterns. Again, spinal column, very at risk that aorta that in a younger patient might need a 60 kilometers per hour deceleration, all bets are off for an older adult and the rib fractures. And, um, I know we're going to talk about them at length later. Those are potentially the most dangerous, risky and fatal injuries in these older adults. So something that would require some Tylenol and Advil and a discharge home, uh, in someone as youthful as Dr. Tillman, <laughs> um, it means admission for an older adult. So, high level of suspicion, everything can be broken, and uh, older adults are tough. They're going to say, I'm fine, dear, uh, and they'll be intubated 48 hours later for their flail chest.
0: All right. So, now that we have a little bit more of an understanding of the differences in the physiology and the injury patterns in, in older patients, Dr. Tillman, how is the resuscitation and primary survey of the older trauma patient going to differ compared to the younger patient in, in general?
2: I think the first thing to remember is treat them as a trauma patient. So ABCs are equally as important. There's going to be changes, which we're about to talk about, but go back to your basic principles. And I would hammer that home. So you want to do the same assessment you do, ensure the things that can kill them right away are in control so they can breathe in. They're not profoundly hypoxic, they're not profoundly hypotensive, and they're not bleeding out. The response to identified injuries is where things may start to change a tiny bit. First of all, they could be coming in on different medications such as diuretics. So their fluid status may not be the same to what we'd expect in a patient who's not on any of these medications. So especially if you're working in an environment that doesn't have access to large stores of blood, you may have four units of blood in your entire hospital. So if you look at ATLS guidelines, they still advocate for giving a leader crystalloid as the initial response in a patient. And in an older adult who may be hypovolemic from not just bleeding, I think it makes complete sense to start with a small fluid bolus. You're, of course, going to have to try and decide what the correct small fluid bolus is, as was talked about earlier with the differences in physiologic reserve, but in the sicker older adult I'm completely comfortable with starting with a half liter so 500 ccs of a crystalloid
0: that's actually quite a bit different than the the younger patients cuz as we talked about in our previous episodes in the resuscitation of the trauma patient we generally want to give no crystalloid at all in the 20 year old that comes in after a car accident so that's that's really quite different so and I think that's an important point because it's been kind of drilled into our heads not to give crystalloid for trauma patients and you know most older patients at baseline are a bit volume depleted and there might be other reasons why they're volume depleted so i think it's just important to recognize that it's okay to give you know 250 or or 500 cc's of a crystalloid up front
2: yep i think that's very important to be clear about of course, if they come in and they you can see them actively arterially bleeding, then that's the problem. Give them blood. Like don't don't ignore the clear, obvious bleeding. But even positive fast, I've had patients who have liver failure and have ascites. Like there's unfortunately many reasons as we all age that our fluid balances change. So it's unfortunately not as clear cut. As the younger patient who's just been in a car crash, you know why they're hypotensive. The older adult who's had a ground-level fall who can be severely injured may be hemorrhaging. It's completely possible. They may also have received 80 milligrams of furosemide that morning, and it was their orthostatic hypotension that led to the fall, and that's what you need to treat. So don't completely dismiss crystalloids in this population the other aspect i'm very passionate about is appropriate analgesia often in the trauma bay we're so afraid of making a patient worse we don't treat their pain and pain is not a good presser i've heard people in the past say we can use pain as a presser it'll keep their blood pressure up that's not compassionate care it's not patient-centered care and we have many other ways to increase someone's blood pressure that being said the dose is going to be different. Whereas I have a young trauma patient who can respond well to opioids, they may get 50 or 100 or more micrograms of fentanyl in a single push bolus. When I'm dealing with an older adult with unclear physiologic reserve, I may give them 25 micrograms of fentanyl. So the two big things that I think about my resuscitation is I'm more likely to give a bit of crystalloid does it mean that if I see a clear bleed I'm not just going to give blood but I'm more likely to use some crystalloid I'm still going to aggressively treat their pain it just happens to take a lower dose of medication to get appropriate and good analgesia
0: What about the goals of resuscitation Dr Tillman you work in an ICU where I'm sure this is a question that comes up like every hour of uh, you know what kind of map do you want to do you want to get to you know it's a little bit different in septic patients it depends on the patient's age it depends on their previous blood pressure any tips in terms of uh, what our goals of resuscitation are in terms of how we know when the older trauma patient is perfusing their organs properly
2: so I wish I had an easy answer for you 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 are so right when you say this is like a hourly discussion in my life. And it's it's really hard. There's been many trials in the ICU now looking at optimal MAP, thinking maybe patients who have been hypertensive in the past should be kept hypertensive. And the consistent signal we're finding is that doesn't seem to be true. It doesn't help protect your kidneys to keep them more hypertensive. So as far as a specific number... I think you're probably going to be okay working with the same map, so a 60 to 65, in a patient without a severe traumatic brain injury. When you're dealing with a traumatic brain injury, you're trying to have a cerebral perfusion pressure between 60 to 70, and the ballpark estimate for someone who's unconscious with a brain injury is their intracranial pressure is 20 or above. So to get a CPP of 60 to 70, you need a map of 80. So that's sort of the one number I can say in a severe traumatic brain injury, try and get the MAP above 80. As to how else can you tell if you are appropriately resuscitating the patient, there was a great trial in septic patient that used capillary refill and showed that it seemed to perform similar to following people's lactate, but it's much easier to get. So that's one skill that we can all do, and I would advocate using I'm actually a big fan of feeling patients' skin for their temperature because it's helpful both in distinguishing distributive shock versus hemorrhagic shock, but you can also start to get an idea of their peripheral perfusion. So that's one of the big things I would use. Aside from that, most trauma patients who are severely injured are going to have a urinary catheter inserted during their trauma. So you can follow their urine output Realizing, though, that if they have underlying renal disease or other renal dysfunction, this may not be the most reliable tool, but more if I'm in a bad trauma and the patient's making pee, I'm happy. It's not so much, oh, they're making 0.5 cc's per kilo per hour, because if I'm in a bad trauma and I have more than an hour to watch them pee, I am unhappy because why are they still in the emergency department for an hour (laughs) <laughs> so, it's the presence of P that's not just the initial bit of P makes me happy. And then, as Dr. Haas brought up, you can use point of care ultrasound to help. And all of these factors so, their skin temperature, their capillary refill, their mean arterial pressure, and seeing both what their left ventricle is doing, what their IVC looks like, if they have B lines across their chest you can put that all together. It's just a shame that there's not a magic number, but that's really what it comes down to, and it again highlights the challenge that is taking care of an older adult who is critically ill, and trauma patients are critically ill patients, but any older adult, because of the changes in physiology, is going to be harder to treat, especially because when you read our textbooks and our studies, so many of this focuses on younger, usually male patients— that what's been grilled into us may not be what this patient looks like or needs.
0: We talked about that capillary refill study on a previous EM cases episode. And for general emergency physicians, we're used to looking at cap refill in kids. I mean, I can't remember the last time I looked at cap refill in an adult, but that's a good reminder that cap refill can actually be very useful uh, in a shocky adult patient. (laughs) Let's talk about airway. We had touched upon airway when we talked about the physiologic and anatomical differences earlier, but I want to talk about how you're going to modify your RSI in the older trauma patient. Dr. Tillman, what do we need to do differently when it comes to an 85-year-old trauma patient who needs plastic in their trachea for whatever reason?
2: I think the first part of this is ensure A, that they need the to be intubated, and B, ensure it's consistent with their goals of care. But let's assume that we have made those two decisions. The first part is how you're going to pre-auctionate them. This is where we're going to get back to the idea of dentures. Dentures provide a scaffold for the face. It can be very helpful if you're trying to beg mask, ventilate someone to keep their dentures in during the ventilation part allows you to get a better seal. And you also want to remember that they may have less physiologic reserve and they may desaturate faster due to underlying lung disease. What that means is if I have the time, I really want to get this patient as well pre as possible. When making the switch, we'll talk about drugs after, but when making the mechanical switch from bag valve masking a patient to then putting the tube in, the dentures are now your enemy. So they were your friend and they have turned on you and it is very mean of them. So as you take the bag valve mask off and maybe the oral airway out, pop those dentures out as well. And I usually do a good finger sweep. Think back to your basic life support when you were doing your lifeguarding or your whatever training you did many years ago, because dentures are, look really good these days, and you might not realize they have dentures when you first look in their mouth. You may think, this person has great teeth. So try and get them out. I've Already this month, I've seen someone intubate with their dentures in. So just do a quick sweep to check because they can trick you. The next part of the airway before we talk about drugs is how you position them. These people usually are going to be in a C-collar. I find it easier to intubate a patient in a C-collar using a hyper-acute video scope. So where I work, that's a glide scope. The reason being when they're in a C-collar, you can't ramp them up. You can't get the ear to sternal notch line. I find that just makes life easier. Understand when you use a hyperacute blade, though, it's going to change your intubating technique and make sure it's something you're familiar with if you're going to try and do that. If you're not familiar with video, I would use another adjunct for getting to an anterior airway. For me, that's a bougie. So assume in trauma, the airway is going to be anterior. Even if they're not in a C collar, remember that you're going to likely have some limited neck mobility. So always assume the airway is going to be anterior. Those are probably the two most common things I deal with from an anatomic standpoint. One is the dentures, when to leave them, when to take them. The second is the location of the airway being more anterior. The other part, as I said, was the physiologic reserve. And there's nothing more challenging than a patient who has difficult anatomy and desats quickly. So Auctionate them well beforehand. The second step to this is what do you do with your medications? So just as I talked about with analgesia earlier, you likely need a lower dose of your induction drugs. So this could be your propofol or your ketamine or whatever the drug you are most familiar with. And that tends to be my recommendation is use the drug you understand. Because as I'm sure most people have heard from our colleagues is the dose makes the drug and the dose makes the poison. So let's say I'm using propofol and I would usually use 200 milligrams to induce a young adult. I would use 20 milligrams in a critically ill older adult. Or if you're using ketamine, you may want to bring it down as well. Another drug you could use if you have access is a single bolus dosetomidate would never use an automated fusion, but you can use a bolus dose. So that's the first step. The second part is the distribution time is usually slowed. So you don't want to just put in the sedation and assume it's going to kick in right away. And if they're not asleep, give more in 20 seconds. Be patient here, which is one of the hardest things to do, both as an emergency physician and in a critical scenario. But you need to be patient. The last part is if you're going to paralyze these patients, and I do paralyze most of the people I intubate, you want to use a higher dose because the onset's going to be slower. And so we want to have our optimal conditions as soon as possible. Given all the things that need to happen for a traumatically injured patient, the interventions they may need, the CAT scans, the transportation. I tend to use rocuronium because I want them paralyzed through all of this. And I'm going to ensure that I use good analgesia and sedation afterwards. And that means I'm using roughly one milligram per kilogram. Uh, Rocuronium comes in 50 milligram vials. So it's just two vials I tend to use. It's easy to drop. It's a 110cc syringe. So to summarize that, lower induction dose, give it a bit more time higher paralytic dose.
0: Excellent. So just to review there, dentures are your friend when you're bagging. They're your enemy when you're tubing. So make sure you have them in the right place at the right time. Remember to assume that it's going to be an anterior airway in all these patients. Start with that assumption. So you might want to use a hyperangulated blade with video. Lower your induction dose, and increase your rock dose. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash EM cases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. I want to move on to C-spine callers (laughs) Now... We actually had an entire episode called Backboard and C-Spine Collar Nightmares. (laughs) I'm just going to throw a statement out there and see what happens. So here we go. Backboards and C-Spine collars save lives, especially in older patients. Discuss.
2: The silence is our pain from that comment. (laughs) Uh, I I think I'm going to let one of my two colleagues start so that I don't fill your podcast with profanity.
0: These are the issues is that, as you were saying earlier, these patients are at very high risk for spinal cord injuries, and they're at high risk for vertebral fractures, even from ground-level falls. You've got that on the one hand. On the other hand, we know that C-spine collars and backboards are associated with significant morbidity. I know that in the younger patient, we usually just throw the C-spine collar away and use you know manual inline immobilization when we, when we intubate them. And then we we know to if we're going to have them in the C-spine collar, to have them in the C-spine collar for as little time as possible. In the older patient, what's kind of your goal? Let's start there.
1: Well, backboards, they are to lift patients from surface A to surface B. That's it. That's their only use. We don't have backboards on the stretchers anymore. We know they cause pressure ulcers. The only reason you need a backboard is to set up a buffet or to transfer a patient from one bed to another.
0: Okay, so the backboard that, that that's the that's the easy one. What about the C spine collar?
1: I think we kind of make a false dichotomy with the C spine collar, where we say you either use it or you're not, and then people get very excited and call you names depending on what side you take. It's often associated with subspecialty. Uh, are you a spine surgeon or are you a emergency room physician? The truth is, the goal should be to clear the spine quickly, but to be suspicious, right? So the issue isn't whip the collar off, throw it on the floor and jump on it in victory. It is to have a protocol to get your patients scanned and cleared quickly. That's the goal. So it's it's not about using collars or not. It's about getting patients out of the collar quickly and what you need to have in place to make that happen. So your 20-year-old with appendicitis, they can wait for their scan so you can clear the 80-year-old in a C-spine collar. You know, it's about prioritizing what we consider important. And again and again, we see that in older adults, we don't see them as urgent. We don't see them as sick, and we don't see them as important. So that's, I think, the answer is actually saying, you know, getting those patients sitting up is a life or death problem. We need to get the spine cleared in the next hour and get them to the scanner. It's not about just letting them sit with nothing. It's about saying, we need to safely get them sitting. What do I need to do to get that to happen?
3: Because what happens after they leave the emergency department and arrive on the trauma ward is that people like Dr. Haas and I look after the patients. And the issue with older adults who are in C-spine collars, I mean, this sets them up for, you know, developing pressure ulcers, pneumonia, respiratory failure, like dysphagia, delirium, all sorts of complications with prolonged cervical mobilization. So, just to hit home the point, it's not C-spine or no C-spine collar. It is developing processes in place so that we can quickly evaluate whether or not the C-spine collar is still warranted.
0: All right. And that's another challenge in older patients, which we'll get to, is clearing the C-spine, especially in the patient who has a history of dementia. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Next up is the workup. So say you've got An older patient with normal vitals, the mechanism of injury is not too worrisome, but you suspect multiple injuries nonetheless. We usually draw a lactate and a blood gas for a base deficit to help prognosticate and uncover any occult bleeding in our sick polytrauma patients. Dr. Tillman, does a serum lactate or base deficit help you in the older patient trying to figure out if this patient has occult shock from a bleed somewhere? You know, which patients should we be ordering a lactate and base deficit on?
2: What evidence shows us is significantly elevated lactates or abnormal base deficits are associated with increased mortality. And when you think abnormal base deficit, that means more negative, which is really complicated to think of because that means the lower number is worse, but minus 10 is a lower number than minus 6. So I just say if the absolute number is high, that's a problem. The cutoff that you may see varies between a base deficit of minus 4 to a base deficit of minus 6. Once they get below those values, you should be really worried about that patient because they have a significantly elevated risk of death, not just of having bad injuries but dying from those injuries. So it's very helpful. It can help you sort of triage these patients in your mind And identify those people with occult shock, where you're not seeing the super low blood pressure, the super high heart rate for the myriad of reasons we've described earlier, but you'll still recognize base deficit minus eight, really sick. I need to do something for this patient now. So
0: that's a little bit about the blood work. Let's talk a bit about imaging. So in many trauma centers in the US, they pan-scan pretty much all the polytrauma patients, and I think we're maybe a bit more selective in Canada, but we still do quite a lot of PAN scanning, even, even in young patients. And I suppose occult injuries are even more common in older patients, and radiation is less of a concern. That being said, Dr. Haas, which older patients should we be considering a PAN scan on in the ED? Or maybe the question should be, which patients do not need a PAN scan?
2: In my mind, there's sort of three groups. There's the people who don't need CT scans, and we definitely see lots of those. There are the people who we're going to do everything on, and that's anyone who's getting a scan of their chest, abdomen, or pelvis. Once you've picked one of the big boxes, do the whole thing. If you're going to scan their spines, get their chest as well. The hardest group is the patient who you've said, I need to scan their head. It's the person who fails the CT head rule, but it's the soft fail. You're not entirely sure. At the very least in that patient, I'm probably doing their head and their C-spine, but making the jump from head and C-spine to chest, pelvis is challenging. It's both challenging as a clinical decision given the amount of people whose head we scan, and it's challenging from a resource decision, especially when you're not in a trauma center. Because I've, I've had these conversations. I know these conversations when I'm moving from a head and a neck to the rest of their body. And how do you make this decision is difficult. I think you have to think about why am I scanning their head? If this is someone who fell directly on their head and didn't hit the rest of their body, okay. make sure they didn't catch their ribs off the dresser as they went down and all the other things. So I look for any signs of trauma on the rest of their body, any pain on the rest of the body. But there is going to be a fairly substantial group of patients who you're just going to do head and C-spine. And if those are completely negative, and you have no injuries, no pain elsewhere, I think it makes sense to get your standard rest of your trauma workup being a chest x-ray and a pelvis x-ray. If they have bruisings anywhere else, If they tell you they hit the dresser on the way down, if a witness says they hit other things on the way down, or you find an injury in one of those two, then the rest of them needs to get scanned. And those are sort of the three groups I put them into, but I find it really hard to identify an older adult who needs their head scanned and not their C-spine. That basically comes as a package for me these days. I used to sort of separate the two out if you were ambulatory and had no neck pain. But given how fragile the neck can be as you get older, and given the fact they're already going to the scanner, it's a package deal for me now.
0: I want to dig a little bit deeper into the C-spine injury workup for the ground-level fall older patient. Now, older patients as we've been talking about, are more likely to fracture their C-spine in even the most minor of traumas, and in particular, high cervical fractures like type 2 odontoids, central cord syndromes. They're more frequent in the elderly too, and these are obviously serious injuries. Now, the Canadian C-spine rules don't apply to patients over the age of 65, but the NEXUS criteria did include about 3,000 older patients. A subgroup analysis of, of these older patients in the NEXUS study did show a 100% sensitivity for clinically significant C-spine injuries. We know the problems with subgroup analyses that we've talked about before on Journal, Gem, et cetera. And this hasn't even been validated, the subgroup analysis. So again, Dr. Tillman, how do you decide who needs C-spine imaging? So if you think the patient needs a CT head, you're going to throw a C-spine CT as well. But let's say you don't see any obvious signs of head trauma, when are you going to image their C-spine?
2: So that's a great question because there are going to be people who don't meet the CT head rules. They're going to come in and they are not by the rules, which are very well developed. I would not argue with Dr. Steele. There are going to be people who you're like, yeah, I don't need to scan their head, but do I need to worry about their neck? I like using the Canadian C-spine rules. When they've been compared head-to-head with Nexus, as Dr. Steele's done, they appear to perform better. There is a subgroup in Nexus, but as you've pointed out, I'm very leery of subgroups and don't know what to make it of that. So instead, I take a look at the Canadian C-spine rules, and I see who first made it into the study. Who did the experts decide were actually high enough risk that you even need to apply an algorithm to determine whether or not they need imaging. So that means if an older adult has absolutely no neck pain, so they come on in and have no neck pain, and uh, maybe slipped and hit their knee, like it was a trip and fall and they hit their knee and they might have a lower extremity injury. Well, there's no neck pain, they were ambulating, uh, they have no paresthesias, I'm probably not going to image their neck. The harder challenge is the patient who fell and didn't walk in. So maybe they pressed their lifeline, maybe they were seen by a loved one, maybe they fell walking down the street. So they've been collared and boarded and brought to you. This is the challenge. The approach I've taken to these patients is, first of all, see if they meet the Canadian CT head rules. If they don't meet the Canadian CT head rules, now I'm going to work on to what I'm going to do with their spine. If there are no signs of trauma anywhere above the clavicle, they are GCS-15 and they have no neck pain, I'm going to say to myself, well this isn't a person who we would have screened for a neck injury given that it doesn't look like they hit their head, there's no history of them hitting their head and there's no pain in their head or their neck, and then I would assess them for paresthesias and not image them. So those are the two people, but as you remember from my anecdote earlier, neck pain for me is a global injury. So if they come in and they say the front of my neck hurts, that counts. We're done. Your neck is getting imaged. So it's any pain basically from the level of their scapula all the way up to their occiput. There's pain in there, welcome to getting your neck imaged. So that's the way I look at it. If they're ambulating in, no neck pain, no signs of trauma above the clavicle, no paresthesias, totally fine. If they come in on a backboard, and again, they're not one of the high risk criteria that we know about from K and C spine rules they pass the Canadian CT head rule. There's no signs of injury. They have no pain in their neck. I'm going to clinically assess them. If there's no further reason I'm concerned, then I'm not going to go about imaging them.
0: Totally reasonable approach. Earlier, we had mentioned that we're going to talk about clearing the C-spine and that our goal is to clear the C-spine as early as we possibly can. Let's say our patient with minor cognitive impairment has a normal CTC spine. We still haven't actually cleared the C-spine. Let's go backwards and ask, Dr. Wong, why is the delayed clearing of the C-spine a geriatrician's nightmare?
3: So we know that um, the issue with the C-spine collar is that it puts older adults at higher risk for developing pressure ulcers. So older adults are usually, you know, their skin is more friable, they may have low weight and those in of itself predispose them to developing pressure ulcers. And then that on top of the immobilization really adds to that risk. The other issue is, of course, the C-spine collar puts them at higher risk for developing aspiration, pneumonia. And if you can imagine yourself in a collar, you know, you're sort of relatively immobilized in the sense that all you can do is look straight up at the ceiling and you really can't hear because the collar is kind of obstructing your ears a little bit. And so we know older adults are really dependent on sort of visual and auditory cues to know where they are, to understand, you know, their surroundings. And so that C-spine collar is just yet another additive sort of iatrogenic thing that we do to people to really escalate that risk of delirium. I mean, the point isn't that whether or not someone should have a collar or not. Really, the point is, you know, can we develop processes where we can expedite that decision about whether or not someone needs a collar in a timely manner so that those that can eventually get their C spines cleared, that's done as quickly as possible. They're also very uncomfortable, right? So, this invariably leads to older adults, you know, who may be developing delirium. They're trying to pull off the collar, and then people interpret that as agitation. The next thing you know, they're in restraints and, you know, they're given sedation and we just go down that rabbit hole of all these iatrogenic, terrible things that we do to older adults.
0: That then leads us into how do we actually clear the C-spine of an 85-year-old who, say, has a history of dementia. Dr. Tillman, any uh, magic bullets there?
2: First of all, dementia is a broad spectrum. And there are many people who have a history of dementia and are quite able to provide a good history and physical exam. So don't just take dementia on the chart as a reason to say, well, we just have to do something else. Make sure that you have a good assessment on the patient. You've optimized their condition. A lack of hearing aids is a common reason to call someone a history of dementia. Of course, there is a proportion of patients who you can't get a good reliable clinical exam, be it dementia or if you've intubated them. And these patients are really challenging. So there is now an EAST practice guideline that says with a high quality CT scan read by an experienced radiologist looking at spines, if it is completely normal, you can clear it. The key there is it has to be normal. And as we know, as you age through life, you wear and tear on your bones, and so it's far less common to be 65 and have a completely normal C-spine. So what's going to happen is you'll have a CT scan that may say, no obvious fracture, has this osteophyte, has this degeneration, dot, 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 dot. And those are the patients who If I cannot clinically assess, I wouldn't rely on the CAT scan alone to clear them. So, steps one are have good imaging. If the imaging is clear, read by an expert in it, and it's completely normal, that's where I'd say that's where we're starting to look at clearing them without further clinical or radiographic exams. In the large bulk of the patient who is altered from their dementia or something else, They're going to have an abnormal CT scan. This is where you're going to need advanced imaging to truly clear it. And for us, that means an MRI. And exactly how often does this change management? Hard to know, but it can be up to 6% of the time. And the real problem is when this changes management or when this is missed, the complications are catastrophic. It's not sort of where you can wait and watch and see what happens. If someone's C-spine slips and takes out their cord, then you are quadriplegic. This is where I would get an MRI. Clearly, even harder in the patient with a history of dementia, where you want them to lie flat in an MRI machine for 45 minutes to an hour while the thing is making incredibly loud and obnoxious noises. And so, a good plan on how you're going to clear these spines and how you're going to manage these patients. And often, this is going to be a discussion either with the trauma service, if you're at a trauma center, or if you're trying to do this in a community setting because you've some reason admitted someone with a C-collar to a community hospital, then you're probably going to want to talk with an anesthesiologist or someone who is capable of doing advanced procedural sedation. Or you're going to be controlling this airway, again, with all the inherent risks. So it is it's quite challenging. There's a lot of factors to work around. Taking this back to what does this mean to me as an emergency physician? Well, if I have a patient I can't examine and the CT is not completely normal on their C-spine, they need further workup. And that means they're either getting transferred to a trauma center or they're getting admitted for ongoing workup. And that's really the box I put in for my ED lens. But looking at further down the scope is how do you safely get someone who's altered through an MRI?
0: All right. Yet another reason to advocate for your patient to be transferred to a trauma center. All right. I want to talk a little bit about patients who are taking blood thinners. So when you're deciding on anticoagulation to prevent stroke in older patients with, say, a fib... We usually weigh sort of the Chad score versus and we think about the has-bled score, and we do some shared decision making there. Let's say you've got a patient whose risk of stroke outweighs their risk of bleeding, but you just saw them for a fall and minor head injury with a negative c t Dr. Wong, how do you go about deciding whether or not to stop the anticoagulant in that situation? Or for the situation for someone who's, say, taking ASA for secondary prevention of MI?
3: yeah. So I guess this is where you sort of get into the concept of proximity bias, right? They just had a fall, right? But really, you know, is it any different than if they had a fall a year ago and they're presenting with the exact same sort of uh, CHAD score or has blood scores? So as you mentioned, I mean, really it is a shared decision-making process that is informed by, you know, various risk estimates from various like validation studies, etc. But this is also where you want to make sure that you understand what health states matter to the patient themselves. In the overwhelming situation, it is usually in favor of continuing anticoagulation to prevent stroke. If we look at sort of one of the classic studies that we usually cite in geriatrics, which was a decision analysis study where it estimated that a patient had to fall approximately 295 times in a year for that risk of a subgeral hematoma to outweigh the benefits of Anticoagulation in the setting of nonvalvular atrial fibrillation. Now that was done back in the day when warfarin was the anticoagulant of choice, and we know that in comparison to warfarin, DOACs have a even reduced risk of intracranial bleeding. So, you know, arguably, you can even say that the rate of falling in a year would be even need to be greater than 295 times a year before you would say, okay, well, let's let's rethink the anticoagulation. I think the important point here is you know, while the risk of bleeding may not necessarily be modifiable, the risk of falling may be modifiable, right? So yes, we think about the medications, but this is again, you know, taking that geriatric or that trauma lens where you look at the whole person to say, okay, you know, they have a clear indication for anticoagulation, but they also have all these other risk factors for fall, some of which are actually modifiable. And thereby I can change that risk benefit ratio towards uh, restarting the anticoagulation.
0: All right. That's incredible I because I've seen a lot of physicians take patients off blood thinners uh, after they come in for, say, their second or third fall who, let's say, have atrial fibrillation and who are on a, on a DOAC. So that's very informative for sure. Well, that brings us almost to the end of part one of this two-part series on geriatric trauma. So Let's do a quick review before the sneak peek of what's coming up in part two. So for identifying occult shock, you can look at the age-adjusted shock index. That may help. And really, any change in the vital signs should be taken very seriously to take into account whether the patient might be on cardiac meds like beta blockers, et cetera. Remember all those physiologic and anatomic challenges, uh, the narrow fluid balance window, the stiff neck and lungs, osteoporosis, et cetera. Make sure to lower your analgesic and induction doses, but don't underdose either of those. Uh, Patients who are older also have pain and uh, they should be treated for their pain for fluids, it's not the end of the world if you give a bit of crystalloid because many of these patients are volume depleted before their injury even happened. Again, we weigh under triage older trauma patients, both at the ED triage desk and when deciding who needs to be admitted and when deciding who needs to be sent to a trauma center. Consider drawing a lactate and a VBG even for older patients who aren't obviously in shock. Uh, They can help uncover occult shock, Have a low threshold to use CT since many injuries are occult and radiation is not as much of a concern in the older patient as it is in the young. Clearing the C-spine early is of utmost importance since a delay is associated with a whole host of morbidities. And to clear the C-spine, you may actually have to transfer that patient to a trauma center. And finally, for the patient on blood thinners, once the CT head is negative for blood, You don't need to stop their blood thinner, of course, unless their INR is through the ceiling. Anything else to add for our reviews there?
1: I think it's important to remember the outcomes of these patients, though they look frail and terrible to us, are highly modifiable. And saving a life in trauma doesn't always mean a one to one to one ratio or a cool procedure or a Crike or an ED thoracotomy. You know, making that decision to get this older adult to the right care is life-saving and life-altering for them. And so we, as trauma providers, need to rethink what trauma looks like. It's Older adults are not a niche area of trauma. It's going to be our bread and butter. And uh, what it means to be a trauma provider is rapidly changing, and we need to catch up to what our patients are already trying to tell us.
0: Well said. All right. So in part two, we'll discuss how chest trauma is a whole different kettle of fish in the older person, the often neglected aspects of diagnosing and managing hip and pelvic fractures, how we can best prognosticate to help in disposition decisions, some tips on discussing goals of care with families, clinical clues to elder abuse, what patients and their families need after you discharge the older patient home after a fall to prevent bounce backs and badness, and the future of trauma care for older people. So thank you very much, Dr. Wong, Dr. Burke, and Dr. Haas. We will uh, be back with part two soon.
1: See you soon. Looking forward to it.
0: Thanks for
2: letting me chime in today.